The scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that you will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me, for she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, good morning. Uh, my name is Aaron. Um, welcome to Exilic, especially if you're uh, traveling uh, in New York for the holidays. We're so glad that you could join us. Uh, we're doing a teaching series on Genesis uh, till the end of the year. And today we're going to park at uh, Genesis 16, and we're going to be taking a look at the story of Hagar. Um, as Pastor David mentioned, uh, Hagar's story does involve uh, emotional abuse and sexual abuse, so we know that these topics can be super triggering. Um, but as difficult as these topics are to talk about, uh, it's, <clears throat> it's important to talk about. Uh, for starters, because... Statistically, uh, so many of us experience some kind of abuse or trauma. Um, so that alone makes it worth talking about. But the second reason why it's important to talk about these difficult topics is because I also believe that the Bible offers us hope and healing and a way forward. That what has happened in your life doesn't have to define your life or cripple you. Uh, from moving forward, um, but the Bible offers you hope and a future and healing. Um, before, though, we ever, you know, before we talk about uh, any kind of abuse, though, uh, we always have to first talk about power, okay? Because it's not the use of power, but it's the misuse of power that leads to abuse. And today we're going to be taking a look at three characters. Two of them had a lot of power, 
One of them had zero power. The two people that had a lot of power were a married couple named Abram and Sarai. Interestingly enough, the, the patriarch and matriarch of our faith. The person who had no power was an Egyptian slave girl named Hagar. Okay, how do we know this? <clears throat> Verse one and two, it says this. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children, so go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. Now, it is impossible to understand Genesis 16 without first understanding Genesis 12. Just like it's impossible to understand your present story without understanding your past. No different with them. In Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abram and Sarai that they would be very fruitful, that they would have a big family tree, that their kids and grandkids would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. That's Genesis 12. By the time we get to Genesis 16, though, I know it's just like four or five chapters, but 10 years have passed. 10 years of waiting on God. 10 years of trusting in God and his timing. 10 years of believing in God, but he doesn't deliver. And so Sarai and Abram do what any people with big logic and small faith would do. They take matters into their own hands. And maybe one or two of us can kind of relate to that, where we become dissatisfied with God's sense of timing in our life. So we take matters into our own hands. And so what do they do? They make this plan where they're gonna take their slave, their Egyptian slave named Hagar, and they're gonna force her to have a baby. They're gonna take that baby as their own and build their lineage through that baby. Now, <clears throat> a couple things that I wanna talk about, uh, particularly as Americans, because whenever we hear the word slave, we automatically think of chattel slavery in America. But ancient Near Eastern slavery was very different. It was not race-based, first of all. Second of all, it was not intergenerational. And third, third of all, you could get out of it. So ancient Near Eastern slavery was very different from chattel slavery in America. But the one thing that they shared in common was a discrepancy of power. Okay. Abram and Sarai owned Hagar. Therefore, they had, they had power and leverage over her. And what I want us to also see for us, like how is this pertinent to our life? I also want you to know that all of us in this room have power as well. Okay, so if you're a parent, you have power over your kids. If you're educated, you have power over those that are uneducated. If you have money, you have the power to buy whatever you want. If you have a senior title at your job, you have power over those that are beneath you. My, my seven-year-old daughter has power over her five-year-old daughter. All of us have power in this room. The question, though, is how we use that power or misuse that power that could potentially lead to abuse. Abram and Sarai don't use their power right. They use their power wrong. And we know this for starters because 
First of all, Hagar's name is never even mentioned out of their mouth. They only refer to her as a slave. In other words, she's just an object. They just call her a slave. Second of all, there's no consent here. They never ask her what her thoughts are. This is a forced kind of surrogacy where they would take her baby as their own. There was no agreement or consent here. Instead, they used their power to impose their own agenda on her. And as a result, Hagar is stripped of her humanity. She's used, abused, impregnated, and about to be discarded. Her entire sense of dignity, value, and worth are stripped from her. And if, I don't, if this is an abuse, I don't know what is. And so you can imagine the kind of trauma that Hagar is now experiencing as a result of this. Studies show that one out of four women and one out of six men will be sexually abused at one point in their life. And I've talked to many people in our own community, both men and women, where they have been sexually abused. And if you're a college student, please listen to me when I say this, but most of the time it does happen in high school or in college by someone that you know who has a sense of power over you. And the impact of sexual abuse is long and extensive, particularly compared to even other people that have experienced various forms of trauma. Rachel Denhollander, who many of you might know, famous gymnast, who was sexually abused along with hundreds of other athletes by Larry Nasser, their trainer. Dan Hollander writes this, compared to peers who have suffered trauma in other forms, okay? This is compared to other people that have also experienced trauma. Sexual assault victims have the most long-term and extensive effects. They are three times more likely to suffer from depression six times more likely to suffer from PTSD, 13 times more likely to suffer from abuse of alcohol, 26 more times more likely to abuse drugs, four times more likely to commit suicide. And I share these stats with you to be able to understand what victims of sexual abuse have gone through and are experiencing. And I also share this to you, with you because I also want you to step inside the shoes of Hagar and what she is feeling at this moment. But Hagar is not only sexually abused, but she's also emotionally abused. And I think the categories of emotional abuse are so important because I feel like the church and our culture as a whole, we've kind of been a little bit more educated and kind of caught up to the categories of things like spiritual abuse or sexual abuse. But the one category that we are still very far behind on as a church and culture as a whole is emotional abuse. But Sarah, uh, Hagar is not only sexually abused, she's emotionally abused. How do we know this? In verse four and six, it says this. Abram slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress, that is Sarai. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever, whatever you think is best. Now, because Hagar is violated, she begins to despise her master, Sarai, 
And because Sarai now feels disrespected by her slave, she senses that there is a power discrepancy not going the other way. Okay. Hagar seems to be getting a little bit braver. Sarai doesn't like that, that power exchange that is now taking place. So what does Sarai do because of this power dynamic that is now taking place? In 6b, it says this. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Now, we don't exactly know how she mistreated Hagar, but for those of you who are Bible students, it's very interesting to me that here is this Hebrew, Sarai, who is mistreating this Egyptian. Because it's in the next book in Exodus where this very same word mistreated is used, and now the Egyptians would now mistreat the Hebrews as slaves for 400 years. Same word that's used. Now, we don't know how she mistreated Hagar. It could have been physical abuse. Could have been. But at the very, very least, it was emotional abuse. Now, what is emotional abuse? Well, emotional abuse in many ways is far more dangerous than even physical abuse. Because when you are inflicted with wounds from physical abuse, you can see a black eye. You can see it. It's visible. But the wounds from emotional abuse are not as visible. Because when someone is attacked emotionally, it's not an attack on their body so much as it is an attack on their personhood. And this is what makes emotional abuse in some senses far more deadly than even physical abuse. This is why oftentimes in the context of marriage, when a spouse, and usually it's the wife, feels like she is being emotionally abused, it's not uncommon for the wife to say, I wish my husband would just hit me. And what, what she's saying there is the torment that I'm experiencing from this emotional abuse is so severe. I, I wish they would just hit me so everyone else around me could see the punishment that I'm experiencing, the pain that I'm experiencing. And that physical hit in many ways pales in comparison to the emotional abuse that I am experiencing. Physical abuse is episodic, and it's an attack on their body. Emotional abuse is not just episodic, it is a constant stream that is an attack on someone's personhood. Proverbs 12, 18, it says, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. Not according to Proverbs 12. When you are being verbally, emotionally abused, it pierces like swords. Proverbs 18, 21, the tongue has a power of life and death. And those who love it will eat its fruit. So what does this look like? What are examples of emotional abuse? It could be gaslighting you, making you feel like you're crazy. It could be belittling you. It could be over-criticism. It could be withholding affection, resources, time, money, withholding any of your love languages. It could be isolating you, abandoning you, accusing you, ordering you, coercing you, lying to you. It could be nonverbal stuff like rolling your eyes. It could be a person that is terrible at apologizing to you terrible at repenting to you. And how do you know when this line has been crossed? Because all of us are guilty of these things at one point or another. How do you know when that line has been crossed? When these things are no longer occasional, 
but there is a constant, frequent pattern of these things that are taking place. That's how you know when the line has been crossed. And so after being both sexually abused and emotionally abused, Hagar does the only thing that she can do. She runs away. She's traumatized. She is alone. She is a stranger in a foreign land. She is hungry and thirsty in the middle of the Middle Eastern desert, and she's pregnant for the very first time in her life. She is at the lowest point in her life, and it is at the lowest point in her life that God meets her, and he finds her. And there's a lot of us in this room, and my, my suspicion is that not all of us is at the highest point in our lives right now. There might be one or two of us that are at the lowest point in our life right now. And I want you to know that it is even in the darkest valleys that God can find you and he can meet you there. In verse 7 and 8, it says, The angel of the Lord found Hagar. He found her. Near a spring in the desert. Hold that phrase in your head, okay? Spring in the desert. It was in the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said to Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. There's lots to point out about these verses. But for time's sake, let me just point out two things. Okay. Number one, the phrase angel of the Lord is very different from just the word angel. Usually, more often than not, in the Old Testament, whenever we see the phrase angel of the Lord... It's usually in reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. This is why the angel of the Lord oftentimes in the Old Testament doesn't refuse worship while regular angels do. And so this is in reference to the pre-incarnate Christ that is manifesting himself to Hagar in some way. The second thing that we see is that God calls Hagar by name. Abram and Sarai never referred to Hagar by name. They just call her a slave, an object. But here God calls her by name. You know why that's so significant? Hagar never introduces herself to God. She doesn't say, hey, my name is Hagar. But he already knew her. He knew her name. He knew everything about her. You know why that's so significant? Because right now, again, think about what Hagar is feeling. She's alone, traumatized, scared, but she probably also feels a sense of shame. Do you know how you minister to someone who feels shame? Very different from the way that you minister to someone who feels guilt. Okay, what's the difference? Guilt is when you feel like you did something bad. Shame is when you feel like you are bad. It's not an action, it's something about yourself that's wrong. That's what you feel like when you feel shame. So when, whenever someone feels guilty, the way that you minister to them is you're forgiven. Like in Christ, you're innocent. So you're forgiven, right? But when you minister to someone that feels shame, where they, where they, where they feel like their personhood is all distorted and broken, you know how you minister to them? They don't need to feel forgiven because oftentimes they did nothing wrong. Something wrong happened to them. So how do you minister to someone with shame? You minister to them by making them feel like they are seen, known, loved. Because when we feel shame, what do we want to do? We want to hide ourselves. 
It's interesting to me that in Asian culture, which is um, shame honor based, you ever see a public figure uh, in Asia that does something scandalous and there's like paparazzi everywhere? What's the one thing that Asian celebrities or high profile people do when they're exposed publicly and there's paparazzi everywhere? They cover their face. They don't want to be seen. They don't want you to know who you are. They want to save their face. And what is God doing here to Hagar who feels a sense of shame? I see you. I know you. And I've called you by name. But notice what he says next. He not only calls her by name, but he says, where have you come from and where are you going? He's He's inviting her to this space to help her process what she's experiencing, and he's trying to give her a voice because she feels like her voice is gone. So he's entering into her story, okay? But notice what he says next in verse 9 and 10. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now... 99% of the time, if you are being abused, probably not a good idea to go back to your abuser. So what I want you to know in this passage is that this is is not prescriptive, but it is descriptive. In other words, this verse is not prescribing what all victims of abuse should do, but rather it is describing what God wanted Hagar to do as she goes through her journey of healing. And the reason why God knows that she's capable of doing this is because he is about to give her a new identity and a new hope and new healing as she confronts and talks to her abusers. And what God promises her is that she would not only have a son, Ishmael, but her descendants too will be too numerous to count, just like he made that promise to Sarai in Genesis 12. And in verse 11 and 12, it says, the angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Now, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, what kind of hope is this? My son's going to be a wild donkey? Like, and he's going to be fighting all his life? Like, what kind of hope is this. Think about it in ancient Near Eastern context. A domesticated donkey is a slave. A wild donkey is a slave to nobody. They are free. Furthermore, the fact that Ishmael is in hostility towards everyone means that he's going to fight for his rights the rest of his life. A slave does not fight. They just submit. And here what God is showing Ishmael, uh, Sarai, is that even though you're a slave right now, your son will not be a slave. He will be a wild donkey. He will be free, and he will fight. And when Hagar realizes this blessing and this hope, that he not only sees her, calls her by name, but he offers her something, hope, a future that no one else offered her, she realizes something that is very different. As he gives her a voice, as he gives her this promise, she says in verse 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. 
For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. What's interesting here is that God not only calls Hagar by name, but Hagar calls God by a name. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only time in Scripture where someone gives God a name, Elroy in Hebrew, which means the one who sees me. And by sees me, Hagar is not only saying God observes me and watches me over me, but what she's really saying is he gets me. He understands me. Uh, Edwin Cologne, um, who often speaks at our church, once shared this story at our church in one of his sermons, but he was talking with one of his um, pastor friends, and they were just, you know, just sharing about life and you know, Edwin is a very transparent guy. And so he was sharing with his friends some of his struggles, like dark stuff that you don't just tell everyone. He was so embarrassed, you know, to share some of this stuff with his friend. But he felt like a sense of shame as he was sharing this stuff. And Edwin, I remember this, uh, said that as his friend was listening to Edwin's um, story, Edwin said that his friend gave him the greatest gift that anyone could ever give when someone feels a sense of shame. And it was just two words. You know what his friend said as he was sharing all this stuff? Me too. Me too. How does, how does Hagar know that God not only sees her, but he understands her? Because one day he would say, me too. Jesus was spiritually abused by the Pharisees and Sadducees of his time. He was emotionally abused. People were constantly gaslighting him. My goodness, who do you think you are? You're crazy. People constantly gaslighting, criticizing him, belittling him, mocking him. He was physically abused. He was spit at, he was flogged, so his flesh hung off like an accordion. That almost killed him itself. He was hung on a cross. He was grabbed in the middle of the night and arrested, and his clothes were forcefully stripped from him. So he hung naked in public for everyone to see. If that's not humiliating and shameful, I don't know what is. And so for those of us who experience shame, right, any kind of shame, I want you to look at the cross because he says two words, me too. It happened to me too. But he not only understands what we go through when we experience shame, but he also gives us new identity. And that's so important. You know, it's important because oftentimes when something uh, very traumatic happens to us, it's very hard to move forward, very difficult to move forward with our lives. And a lot of it, though, isn't the horrific thing that happened to us that prevents us from moving forward, but it's the meaning we attach to that event that prevents us from moving forward. That's why you can have two people that experience the same thing. Why is it that one person can move forward, but the other person can't? They're like crippled. Why is that? It's not because of the event, but it's the meaning that they attach to, to the event that prevents them from either moving forward or not being able to move forward. One person lets that event define their life. 
the other person does not let that event define their life. They let something more powerful define their life, and therefore they are able to move forward. And what I want you to know is that whatever trauma that you have experienced in life, don't let that define your life. Please don't do that. Let something more powerful define your life. And again, what, what did I say before? How do you minister to someone with shame? They have to feel seen, known, and loved. Okay. What, what greater example of that is, than the, is, is there than the cross? Okay. It didn't cost God $100 to save your life. It cost him the life of his son. That is how worthy you are. That is how loved you are. I know someone cares about me and loves me if they're willing to die for me. And that is what we see Jesus do on the cross for us. And just as he forgives our sins on the cross and he covers Adam and Eve's shame when they are naked, he covers our shame too with his righteousness and his love for us. I'll just close with two quick stories, okay? Remember that phrase I told you to park in your head? A spring in the desert. Does that story sound familiar in the New Testament? A woman who feels ashamed in the middle of a desert by a spring. In John chapter 4, there's a Samaritan woman who comes to draw water from a well in the middle of the day. No one, no one draws water in the middle of the day. It's too hot. You draw water in the morning or at the evening. You don't draw water at high noon. So why is a Samaritan woman drawing water from the well in the middle of the day? It's because she's ashamed. She wants to hide her face. She doesn't want anyone to see her. <laughs> and here's Jesus comes and sits by her by the well. And she's just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you associating with me? Why are you, why are you entering into a relationship with me? And he says, can I have some water? And she's like, you know, sure, here's some water. And, and, and he says, just so you know, like, I have living water so that if you drink from it, you'll never be thirsty again. And, and so she says, you know, where can I get this living water? And you know what he says to her? Bring your husband. And it's just like, like, what? Just give me the living water. Why are, you, why are you asking me if I have a husband or not, like my marital status? What is he doing there? He's saying, I know everything about you. You've already had five husbands. The sixth person that you're with right now, your boyfriend, is not your husband. He knows her story. He knows that she feels ashamed. He knows everything about her. That's why she goes into the village and she says, come meet a man that told me everything I ever did, but loves me anyway, sees me, cares about me. And you know why I share this story? Because that is what Jesus offers every one of us. It's not like we could hide anyway. He sees you, knows you, cares about you. You don't have to hide. How freeing is that when you don't feel like you have to disappear from public because of what has happened? But you could be your true self. But I also say that, not because that is what God offers you, but that is what we have to offer one another. You know, Brene Brown, who's written a lot on shame for decades, she tells a story about a friend's friend. 
And the friend's friend had a mother that was alcoholic, like bad alcoholic. So she only invited her over like once a year. And of course, the one time that she invites her over, uh, Brene Brown's friend's friend's mom is drunk on the couch at 3 p.m. So she comes home from work, sees her mom drunk. She's panicking because the kids are about to come home. She doesn't want them to see grandma drunk. So Brene's Brown's, Brene Brown's friend's friend calls her friend. And she says, can you come? Because I need to physically move my mom off the couch and I can't do it by myself. And Brene Brown's friend says to Brene, that's the kind of friend you are to me. You're the kind of friend where I don't have to be embarrassed about my family drama. I don't have to explain myself to you. I don't have to say, hey, can we keep this on the down low? Like, can you not tell anyone about it? Like, you don't, there's no explanation or stuff like that that's needed. And that's the kind of friend God is to us. That's the kind of friend we also have to be for other people. We can't criticize them, judge them, or say, you did something wrong, or even not know what to say. We have to know what to say at times, okay? Because then the reverse is going to happen where they feel like they have to comfort us because it's so awkward. That is the kind of friend that we have to be for other people because that is what Jesus is like for us. I want us to be a community that is unashamed to talk about shame because I know three things. And I think Brene Brown's right about this. Everyone has shame. Number two, everyone's scared to talk about shame. Number three, the less we talk about it, the more we experience it. So how about we talk about it? Just like the angel of the Lord talked about it with Hagar. Let's be a safe space where people can move forward with their life and be rid of their disgrace and shame. Let's pray. Uh, God, we, um, we thank you for um, this difficult story of Hagar. Um, but as difficult as it is, we know it's very important. And to a greater or lesser degree, all of us experience some kind of shame at one point in our life where we just want to disappear from the earth and just hide. Uh, but help us to know that there is safety and refuge in you. I mean, it's not like we can hide anything from you anyway. And that you love us, that you see us, and you care about us. And the proof of that is the cross, where there is hope for not only those that have been abused, but even for abusers as well. For not only those that have used their power well, but have used, misused their power. There is hope and forgiveness. And for that, we thank you for the beauty of the cross. Thank you for seeing us, loving us, knowing us, and caring for us, even at our lowest points. In your name I pray, amen. <clears throat>